0: Welcome back to the trustworthy study. You know, before we dive in today, I think it's helpful to orient ourselves in the series of the Kings. This week, the kingdom divides and in all honesty, it gets a little confusing, especially because the first King of the Southern kingdom and the first King of the Northern kingdom have very similar sounding names. Okay. So here we go. Things go poorly quickly after Solomon dies. Rehoboam is the son of Solomon. He is next in line for the throne. But as you read in our story, he makes some bad choices that lead the people of Israel into a revolt. Jeroboam is the leader of this revolution. The result is that the kingdom divides in two. The Northern kingdom is led by Jeroboam and the capital is Samaria. This kingdom is referred to as the kingdom of Israel. The other kingdom, the Southern kingdom is led by Rehoboam and the capital is Jerusalem. This kingdom is referred to as the kingdom of Judah. The southern kingdom, Judah, carries on the line of David, which is important because it will eventually bring us to Christ. So this week, we're reading about Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Our author will focus more on Jeroboam in her lesson, so for this week, we'll put the focus on Rehoboam. You know, there's not a ton of scripture telling us all about Rehoboam. We can read part of his story in 1 Kings and part in 2 Chronicles, but we really only get a few snapshots from his life. But I think there's still plenty of wisdom to be gleaned from the life of this king. You know, I have this friend from college. We'll call him Joe. Joe is fun, he's a nice guy, and he's a really good friend. But he has one fatal flaw that used to drive us nuts. He was constantly asking for advice and never taking it. Most of the questions were surrounding his love life, always wanting our advice on what to say to girls that he liked and whatnot, and he would listen intently, he would nod along, agree with what was being said, and even make a plan in his head for what he would do. And then he would go off and do whatever he thought was best in his own head. I wonder if you know a Joe. I find that most people know somebody like that. Somebody who earnestly seek the help and advice from people that they trust, and then they just do whatever they want. Or they ask more people until finally someone tells them what they want to hear. I know I've been guilty of that in the past myself. Rehoboam had issues with this too. And so our first lesson we can learn from, the life, from his life is this. Seek wise counsel. Let, we're going to read a bit from 1 Kings 12. And when we get here, the people of Israel are tired. They've been suffering under a heavy burden under King Solomon. And so they ask the new king, Rehoboam, to lighten their load. So first, Rehoboam shows great wisdom. He seeks the counsel of the elders. These men, we read, have been advisors to King Solomon. So we know that they're experienced, they're wise, and here they offer some really good advice. They basically tell him, listen, if you give them this thing, you'll win their loyalty forever. Serve them now by giving them a break that they're asking for, and you'll have very loyal servants for life. It's good advice. But of course, Rehoboam doesn't take it. Instead, he seeks out his young friends and asks them their take. I don't know about you, but I can just totally picture this scene. A bunch of young hotshots sitting around boasting about how great they are. Arrogant, rude, unsympathetic, and very... Into themselves. So let's pick up in that conversation in 1 Kings 12, starting in verse 9. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus you shall speak to this people who have said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Okay. So here we have a foolhardy, newly minted King caught up in delusions of grandeur, surrounded by a bunch of absolute bros who all seem to be there just to boost each other's egos. I only find it funny because I can picture it so perfectly. We've all seen this kind of peacocking behavior before. You thought my dad was rough, eh? He's nothing compared to me. You thought he was strong? My little finger is thicker than his thighs. Different expression for the same nonsense we hear today about who is stronger and who is mightier. It's the ancient equivalent of, wow, you thought he was tough? I'll squash you like a bug. These young men are feeding right into this young king's arrogance. They're telling him exactly what he wants to hear. And so, of course, he listens to them. The real tragedy of this story is that there was someone giving Rehoboam wise counsel. He had the good advice he needed from trusted sources. There were wise men with authority to speak and the position to speak wisdom into this young man, but he ignored them in favor of what he wanted to hear. You know, like any arrogant and foolish person, he didn't want to hear humble yourself for advice. He didn't want to serve anyone. He wanted to be served because that's what he believed great leadership was. He believed a king showed his might not in serving his people but in overpowering them. He wanted the loyalty that stems from fear and oppression rather than loyalty out of love. And as a result he loses most of his kingdom. It's really tragic. So as we think about what wisdom we might glean from Rehoboam's folly I'm challenged to think about the ways I'm tempted to follow down this path myself. Here are a few questions to ask ourselves. Rehoboam ignored the truth in favor of a message he wanted to hear. Are you prone to do that sometimes? I know I am. I think everyone can fall into this sometimes. See, we look for an echo chamber, sometimes without even realizing that we're doing it. Now that I'm aware of it, I can tell sometimes when I'm not willing to confront something inside myself solely based on who I speak to about the problem. Am I seeking out yes men who will agree with whatever I say or am I seeking truth? Some people believe that the job of a true friend is to support you and to agree with whatever you say. If I feel wronged by someone, then my friend should burn with righteous indignation on my behalf. It's a trait that's mistakenly described as loyalty. But a truly loyal friend will tell you gently and with great love when you're wrong. They won't blindly agree with whatever you say, but rather they'll push you in a direction of Christ-likeness. This is how we know if we're seeking true wise counsel or an echo chamber. Is the person I'm speaking to agreeing with me and boosting my ego, or is the person pushing me towards becoming more and more like Jesus? Sometimes it can be hard to sort out discernment, especially in today's modern culture where we have a crisis of truth. Who is to be trusted? What are our sources for truth? How do I know if I can believe what I'm seeing and reading and even experiencing? Discernment is more important now than ever before. And it's essential that we as Christ followers are offering discernment and wisdom to each other. I want you to take a quick look at this diagram. This is called the mentoring constellation. You can see it's just a simple diagram that illustrates our need for community. Each circle represents a person, at least one, maybe more, of the different types of mentoring relationships that really help build up healthy followers of Christ. Here are a few questions to ask yourself when you're thinking about the mentoring constellation. Who is in your mentoring constellation? Are you seeking wisdom from older and wiser women? Do you have honest and God-honoring peer friendships? Are you investing in younger women by offering them your wisdom? If you were to fill the names in this constellation, you might be overflowing and writing in teeny tiny lines. Or maybe there's a blank spot or two. If that's true for you, don't be discouraged. You know, the first time I saw this, I had some blank spots as well. So I prayed. That God would fill them in. And he did so faithfully that it was astounding. Because remember our study of King Solomon? If we ask God for wisdom, he is excited to give it to us. And if we ask God for wise people to surround ourselves with, he will give them to us. We need voices speaking into our lives with encouragement, but also truth. And unlike Rehoboam, when we hear the wise advice being given, we had better Take it. Which leads to our next lesson from the life of Rehoboam. Learn from the past. Honestly, this subheadline could pretty much be applied to all of 1st and 2nd Kings. We see king after king after king, generation after generation repeating the same mistakes over and over. It would be comical if it wasn't so sad. Rather than learning from the past, each generation of Israel and Judah seems to have a vested interest in playing it out for themselves again and again. We've already discussed a bit of this idea of the high places, these places of worship where God's people slipped into idol worship. It's a pattern that's existed in God's people even long before there were kings in Israel even going back to the days when Moses was on Mount Sinai and he was meeting with God. And by the time he came back down the mountain, the people had already made idols for themselves to worship. This wasn't a new problem for these people. But we read in 1 Kings chapter 14 that it happens again in both Jeroboam's kingdom and Rehoboam. Let's read verses 22 and 24. And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, And they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed, more than all that their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places and pillars of ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nation that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. So in Rehoboam's kingdom, the people are not following God. Instead, they're going along with all of the pagan practices around them. They're worshiping in these high places, and they're abandoning the laws that God gave to them. And most surprisingly and alarmingly, they are participating in rituals with male cult prostitutes. I'm going to have to pause here a second and unpack this. This is important because if you're anything like me, This bit right here feels like a very sharp left, like, whoa, how did we get here? And if you're anything like me, this feels very hard to relate to. Sure, I have plenty of struggles with sin and plenty of areas where my heart is pulled away from God and towards something of the world, but I got to say, male cult prostitutes has never been a weak spot for me. I do not relate to that even a little bit. Well, that might not be entirely true, and here's why. These cult rituals had a very specific purpose. The rituals were intended to give the participants something they were looking for, specifically fertility and fruitfulness. If you wanted your land to prosper, you might partake in this ritual. If you were trying to build a family in the ancient world, this might be something you try. So while this seems like a very extreme step away from God's law, it's actually a similar trap that God's people have always fallen prey to. That trap is relying on something else other than God to meet our needs. The prostitutes existed to bring fertility to the people and the land. It was sexual perversion for sure, but the motivation was earthly prosperity and trusting in something other than God for it. So what does this look like in our culture? How do we put our faith in worldly things rather than in God to meet our needs? This can play out many different ways. It can be as simple as withholding our charitable giving when the financial future seems uncertain, or taking matters into our own hands and forging ahead with our man-made solutions rather than listening to what God's direction might be. It happens in every single moment in which we put our faith in something other than God, and that action in and of itself draws us closer and closer to sin. Rehoboam forgot the sins of the past, and thus all of Judah forgot with him. But forgetting is dangerous. Forgetting is dangerous because it makes us all the more likely to repeat the mistakes and the failures and the sins of the past. As I said before, it's a pattern that we're going to see again and again with these kings. When we forget the past, when we overlook it, we're likely to repeat it over and over. This is the entryway to my house. This is a plant in the entryway to my house. I don't know what it's called. I'm not good at plants. I like them, but I'm not very good with them. I have a string of bananas that seems to like living with me and a pothos that's doing okay right now, but that's about it. But this plant right here, this plant I have purchased no less than four times. Exact same type of plant. I have marched into Home Depot again and again to repurchase. It dies, it drops all these jagged little leaves all over my entry, I sweep it up, eventually I admit defeat, I dumped the dead plant outside and I head right back to Home Depot to start the cycle afresh. I even bought a cute pot in a little plant stand thinking that was the problem, like the little plant just wasn't happy with his aesthetics. Why do I keep buying the same plant over and over despite the fact that it continues to die? I don't know. It's a cool looking plant when it's not dead but I can't keep it alive. So after the cycle continued for about two years, I finally showed some growth. I bought a bench. Benches don't die, and you can sit on them when you take off your shoes. This goes to show my friends, there is hope for us all. We can break the cycles of forgetting the past, at least when it comes to our plans. You know, forgetting is dangerous because we can repeat the failures from the past, but forgetting can also be a willful choice. Even the word forget, can make it seem like a rather passive activity, can't it? Like, oh, I didn't do anything intentionally, I just forgot. But forgetting so often is a willful and intentional choice that stems from pride. Have you ever heard this before? The definition of insanity is repeating the same thing over and over, expecting a different outcome. I disagree with that. I don't think that's insanity. I think that's something broken within our nature as people. It's not that we're crazy. It's that we believe we can beat the system. We're smart enough or strong enough or clever enough or coming at this with enough power of will to change the previous outcome into something new and unexpected. It's not insanity, it's hubris. And when it happens in our own lives, as well as the lives of these ancient Kings, the stakes are very high which leads us squarely to our final lesson from the life of Rehoboam. Remember who you're not. There are two times when people go completely and utterly off the rails of following God's will and walking in obedience. First, when things begin falling apart and they no longer trust God with the outcomes because things are starting to look scary, and so they attempt to seize control once more in an effort to save themselves. And second, when things are looking so good that they forget why things are so good. They forget that life is good because they've been walking in accordance with God's commands and they start to believe the false narrative that our success can be attributed to what we have done. We've earned our success in our happiness. We're no longer desperate for a God who saves because we feel pretty good about saving ourselves. Rehoboam is a bit of the second. In fact, if I can sum up Rehoboam in two verses, it would be these. Second Chronicles 12, one, When he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. In verse 12, when he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him. When Rehoboam was strong, he forgets how he got there. Then he remembers and humbles himself, and the cycle repeats. After Rehoboam takes the foolish advice of his young friends, things start to go south pretty quickly. Jeroboam ends up at the helm of this revolt and the kingdom divides. We read about that, but interestingly Rehoboam isn't all bad all the time. In fact, right after this incident, he starts to make good choices. 1 Kings 12:21. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors, to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man returned to his home for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again, according to the word of the Lord. Look at that. He's listening. Rehoboam actually reverses course when the word of the Lord comes. He realized he's about to make another bad choice and he listens to wise counsel and he course corrects. And things actually go pretty well in Judah for a time. Second Chronicles 11:17. 17. They strengthened the kingdom of Judah, and for three years they made Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, secure. For they walked for three years in the way of David and Solomon. For three years they followed God. Even though the kingdom had split, as God had knew it would, the dust had settled, and Judah was following God. So much so, in fact, that some of the priests who were in the northern kingdom actually come down to Jerusalem so that they can worship God properly. As Jeroboam is messing up, creating his own religion, the Levite priests actually leave Israel to return to Judah. Rehoboam's kingdom, for three whole years, is actually more faithful than Jeroboam's. At the beginning of the story, it really looks like Rehoboam is the bad guy and Jeroboam is the good guy, but we're going to find out that truthfully, neither are good. They both have good moments, but ultimately, neither one is going to follow God. They'll fall away from God, and they'll lead all the people along with them, just as God had promised they would do when they begged for a king. So let's read about what happens after Rehoboam's three years of faithfulness. 2 Chronicles 12, 1 and 2. When the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him, In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, Shishak, king of Egypt, came against Jerusalem. The king of Egypt mounts an attack. And when they're under siege once again, once again, Rehoboam humbles himself before the Lord. And once again, God is gracious. He does not allow the Egyptians' destruction to be complete, and things settle again. And Rehoboam's power builds again, and he forgets again. Second Chronicles 12, 14, and he did evil, for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Dependence on God is key to trusting in God. When we realize our deep need for God, then we use what we know about him to support the idea that he can meet every need. Rehoboam forgot who he wasn't. And what I mean by that is he forgot that he wasn't God. He thought that he was the one leading within his own strength. He thought that he was to thank for all of this power and success. There's this Frank Sinatra song. I'm guessing most of you have heard it. It's called My Way. And Frank says this. He says, I lived a life that's full. I traveled each and every highway. And more, much more than this, I did it my way. And people tend to sing this song like it's an anthem, like it's something to be proud of. Nothing against old Frank, but imagine at the end of our lives coming before the king of kings and saying, Hey God, what can I say? I did it my way. It's ridiculous to think our own ideas are better than God's, but that's the attitude that we too often live with. I tend to be a bit like Rehoboam in this way. I think I'm handling things just fine my own way. I can problem solve. I can do what it takes to make sure everything works out until the moment when I realized it's out of my hands. During week one, when we were working on the whiteboard together, a woman named Suzanne said, when it's out of our control, it's easier to let go. And I thought that was so profound. I find that to be true in my own life. I wanna do things my own way. I have ideas for my life and the lives of people I care about. And I think those ideas are the best ideas. So when God comes in with something different, I get nervous that he's not gonna do it my way. But when it's all stripped away, and I stop, and I really think I realize maybe I don't actually have all the answers. Maybe my way is actually going to lead to a lot of trouble and pain. So when we reach the end of our own lives, let's pick a new anthem. There. I fixed it. Heavenly Father, may we always do it your way. May we understand that while we have plans and ideas, your plans and your ideas are better for ourselves, for the lives of those we care about. May we not continue in the cycles of these ancient kings, but may we instead learn. You included each and every story in the Bible for our good and for our instruction, and we pray that these would be instructive to us today that we would learn to do things your way and only your way, that we would not be tempted to seize control, to take matters into our own hands and to try to force the outcomes we want, but rather that we would listen for your voice, your guiding, and your wisdom. In your name I pray, amen.